we left off on section B5, the waters which with which purification is permissible. Okay, so the waters with which ritual purification is permissible. It is permissible to perform ablution and a ritual bath with all pure water, such as rain and water found on land, even if it changes due to being stagnant, or is changed by water which is still regarded as water or with something pure which the water dominates, such as ushnan, soap, and saffron. Okay, so this is basically if the water comes from a natural source, such as a spring, um, such as a river, such as uh, the ocean, or rain, then all of these are waters which are permissible. And if it, um, if something, basically if something uh, that is pure mixes with the water, but it's still considered water, then it's still permissible. But if it overcomes it, which is going to come, then that would take a different ruling. But like, for example, the, the ones that are given, the clearest of these is probably, in our case, soap. That generally, if you have a little bit of soap that mixes with the water, if you put some uh, bubble bath soap in your tub water, it's still water that's in the tub. We don't change the name of that because of a little bit of soap that was mixed with it. Uh, it's still considered water, and as such, it would still be something that you can purify with. But some of the rules of that are about to go. <coughs> وما ولا يجوز الوضوء بماء تغير أحد أوصافه بنجاسة ولا بماء راكد قليل وقعت فيه نجاسة وإن قل وإن قلت وهو ماء لا يبلغ عشرة أذرع في مثلها. That which purification is not permissible with. I'm going to read the sec this whole section and then we'll go to the commentary and then after that let's uh, I'll probably share some more things depending on how much is in the commentary and then we'll see if it's all clear inshallah. That which purification is not permissible with, it is not permissible to perform ablution with water, one of whose attributes has changed due to an impurity, nor with a small amount of stagnant water in which an impure substance has fallen. It is regarded as small if it is water which is not 10 cubits by 10 cubits. So they'll distinguish between an amount of water that is considered small versus an amount of water that is considered large. Um, so if it's a small amount that's not a flowing water, and Najasa falls into it, then it would become impure by that, even if uh, the attributes have not changed, which again we'll, we'll come to. Used water purification so there's that's what that which is uh, mutahir, which is it's pure and it can 
lift impurities from something else and then there's tahir which is that it's pure but it doesn't remove impurities so this says used water purification is not permissible with water used to remove a state of ritual impurity nor to renew ablution the water is pure by not pure uh, is pure but not purifying so al mustamil is water that has been used in rafi hadith which would mean like um that would be if you were not in a state of wudu and you needed to make wudu and you went and you made wudu the water that falls off of your body after you do that is called al man mustamil it's called used water and that water is pure but not purifying so you wouldn't be able to use that um, to make wudu again uh, and that's um, that also applies to a wudu that wasn't required but you still did right like one of the sunnahs of the Prophet them was that he would make wudu for every salat uh, whether or not he had to so that's technically not a wudu that is to remove a state of ritual impurity but it's still a wudu that's an act of worship so uh, that's that's what's being referred to in nor to renew ablution so in, in both of those cases the water is mustamil so it's 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 used water if it's used to remove an impurity or it's used as an act of act, act of qurba coming closer to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala حكم الماء الجاري والكثير ولا ينجس الجاري وكذا ما بلغ عشرة أذرع في عشرة إلا إذا غيرته. The ruling of flowing and a large amount of water. So one of these are two categories. One is water that flows like a river, like a moving river, and the second is like a a, a large body of water. So flowing water does not become impure. And likewise, that which reaches 10 cubits by 10 cubits, except if its attributes change. So, flowing water is clear, you know, again, water that's running. Uh, and then large, a large amount of water uh, doesn't become impure by Najasa entering into it, unless one of its qualities, you can see its uh, attributes change. Um, they use here in the later books 10 by 10, you know, um, 10 by 10 and then a hand's length deep. Uh, the, er, the early, again, this is one of those examples where Abu Hanifa, radiallahu an, his uh, perception on it was more kind of like open. And in the later books, they start to define the particularity of it. Ostensibly to make it easier for the person But Abu Hanifa would say that it's a large amount of water If when you move one side of the water It doesn't affect the other side So if you were to like Play with it a little bit with your hand And tap, tap the water and stuff If that doesn't reach the other side Then that's a large amount But in the later books they say 10 by 10 Okay, so let's go to the commentary before we move on. That's 32. To clarify this more. Okay. So it is permissible to perform ablution and a ritual bath with all pure water such as rain. We already went over that. That's the clearer part. And water found on land even if it changes due to being stagnant or is changed by water which is still regarded as water. It's kind of a funny expression. Meaning this liquid is still called water. An example being water that changes color due to mixing with soil and the water of stagnant pools in which leaves fall during the autumn. Both of these events change the three qualities of water, namely taste, color, and smell. But they're, but they're still considered water, and they're things that are normally in water 
and like if it's a naturally occurring source of water. So the three qualities this is what's important here. Three qualities because it refers to over and over again those attributes uh, of of the water that can change, right? And those are taste, color, and smell. Taste, color, and smell. These three. Taste, color, and smell. Uh, which will come up in a second. Or with something pure which the water dominates. Because the ruling is for that which dominates. Whether that which is admixed is intended to enhance cleanliness, such as soap and its like, or is not intended to do so, such as saffron. The basis for this is that the Prophet ﷺ washed himself from a container of water, which contained a trace of dough. Okay. So, again, you have something that's pure, it mixes with the water, but it doesn't dominate the water. The water is still dominant. You have a little bit of dough, you have a little bit of saffron, a little bit of soap, but the water is still, still has its qualities, which are the taste, color, and smell. Um, or if it's something that's, um, uh, if, if the water mixes with something that is liquid, then the qualities you're looking at are taste, color, and smell. And if the water mixes with something that is solid, then what you're looking at is which is like the um, what's the word for that uh, viscosity and uh, flowingness of the water so is it still is it still as light as water usually is and does it still flow so if you mix it with like I don't know Like peanut butter, so much so that like it doesn't really flow anymore. It becomes really thick and not moving. And then, if it gets to that point, then it's no longer acceptable to use. But if it's just a little bit, that it can still uh, the water still dominates it, then then you're okay. Uh, such as ushnan soap and saffron. Uh, it's a plant which was used to wash clothes, and the body of a person has similar qualities as soap. Okay, that which is purification, that which purification is not permissible with, it is not permissible to form. This is where you're going to get the details. Okay, it is not permissible to perform ablution with water, one of whose attributes has changed due to an impurity. Okay, so the ruling of water is based on that which is predominant. This is true. So what he's about to describe here, even though it's now talking about mixing with impurities, these first couple paragraphs are about mixing with things that are pure. Uh, actually, this whole section, I'm not sure why he put it that way, but um, in any case, let's read it. Um, the ruling of water for water is based on predominance. That which mixes with water can be either a solid or liquid substance. So this is going to be kind of what I was just saying. If that which mixes with water is a pure solid substance, then the predominance of a solid substance will be defined when the water is no longer liquid nor fluid. This is whether the solid it mixes with is intended to cleanse, such as soap, or not, such as saffron or tree leaves. Thus, if any of these mix with water purification, is correct with it, even if it changes the color, smell, and taste of the water. It's something that's solid. It remains uh, separate from the water. However, this is with the condition that the name water still applies to it, along with its attributes of liquidity, fluidity, and quenching thirst. As for that which mixes with the water uh, is a liquid, then it has a number of scenarios. That the liquid with which mixes with the water matches water in all its three qualities of taste, color, and smell. Examples of this would be rose water, whose smell has subsided. In such a case, if both were to mix, consideration would be given to the proportion. If absolute water is predominant, then ablution will be permitted. If it is overcome, then it is not permitted. So here you have a liquid substance that's mixing with the water. 
and it doesn't have taste it doesn't have color it doesn't have smell if that is the case then the ruling goes to the one that is more the ruling goes to the one that is more if the liquid differs with water in all of its qualities such as vinegar so now it cha it's different in taste it's different in color it's different in smell okay like vinegar if it changes the water by a majority of its three differing attributes becoming apparent then ablution is not permitted with it so basically if it has three if it has three qualities taste color and smell and it mixes with water then if two of those show up in the new compound then one is not able to drink it or not able to use it for wudu you can drink it but you, it's not able to be used in wudu or ghusl it's not purifying okay so if it has uh, so you have some vinegar you mix that vinegar with the water the resulting compound has some smell and um, it has some taste so it changes I don't know what kind of vinegar this is by the way I don't I, I get I guess it's a vinegar that has color maybe it's like a apple cider vinegar or something if liquid differs from water in one or two qualities then consideration is given to the differing qualities being predominant an example is milk which differs with water in color and taste if milk mixes with water and its color or taste predominates evolution is not permitted and if not then it is so milk is different than water in color and taste not in smell there's not really any smell so color and taste if either the color or the taste show then you can no longer make ablution with that water so there's two qualities so if the li liquid that's being mixed has two qualities and one of them shows then you can no longer use it to make wudu likewise in the case of melon juice which differs with water in terms of its taste only so it only differs in its taste. It doesn't have any color, doesn't have any smell, but it does have a taste. So if that ob object that or this uh, liquid that has taste is mixed with the water and you can taste it, then you can no longer use it for wudu. Uh, <coughs> if they both mix, predominance will be identified through taste. So that's what I just said. Um, Let's finish this last part. Nor with a small amount of stagnant water in which an impure substance has fallen, it is regarded as small if it is water which is not 10 cubits by 10 cubits. What is meant is that each of its four sides are 10 cubits in terms of length and width, at the, and, uh, and that the surface area of the water is 100 cubits. The legal, legal verdict, fatwa, regarding its depth is that when water is scooped from it, the bottom of the pool does not become visible if the volume of water does not reach this amount the water is regarded as a small amount and is adjudged to be impure by the mere presence of any filth in it so if the water is not a large amount of water so now we everything we covered up to now was a pure substance mixing with water so what about an impure substance mixing with water if an impure substance mixes with a small amount of water, then it is impure, regardless of whether or not any of the um, attributes of that impurity show up. It doesn't matter. All that matters is it could be like a small drop of urine. You put it in the bucket of water, or it gets in the bucket of water, and it doesn't really show in any sort of way, but you know that that urine went into the water. It's all impure, unless it's this larger amount or more okay if it's stagnant water note it says stagnant water it's not so in order to exclude the running water which comes after this okay um, let me just finish this section we'll take any questions used water purification is not permissible with water used to remove a state of impurity nor to renew ablution the water is pure but not purifying we already covered that and the ruling of flowing and a large amount of water flowing water does not become impure and likewise that which reaches 10 cubits by 10 cubits except if its attributes change so the 
thing about a large amount of water is that the impurity doesn't entering into it doesn't automatically make it impure unless you can actually see the consequence of that impurity in the in the water if you can see it then uh, it's not acceptable to use that portion of the water maybe if you go to like the other side of the pool that's why it's referred to as if you move one side of it the other side is not affected so maybe like the impurity falls on one side you can see it you can't use that part of the pool now but all the way on the other side of the pool that has not like the swimming pool but the pools that they used to have outside of the masajid to make wudu from and stuff like that all the way on the other side um, you'll the water is fine okay meaning that each side of its 10 cubits the circumference I said that already okay if the pool of water is round or triangular or rectangular or it's like it is examined to see if it were a square would it equal 10 by 10 Uh, in the footnote, he mentions, I think, what I had mentioned before. Uh, regarding 10 by 10 cubits is the position cited in many of the books of the Hanifi school. The scholars mention it because it helps to give a guideline for those who are not sure as to what constitutes a large pool of water. The view chosen by some scholars is to leave it up to the person faced with the situation to decide whether the pool of water is such that an impurity falling in one side would not spread to the other side. This is reported from Abu Hanifa as the Zahir al-Riwayah. Similar to this was also mentioned by Ibn al-Humam in Fath al-Qadir. Zahir al-Riwayah, this is important. Um, there's three levels of things in the madhab when it comes to the narrations uh, of what is or is not the madhab. One of them is called Zahir al-Riwayah that's mentioned here. Zahir al-Riwayah is that which is narrated from Abu Hanifa radiallahu an uh, in a way that it we have no doubt that he said it. It's basically like Mutawatir from Abu Hanifa. Uh, the next level is what's called Nawadir. Nawadir are narrations that come from Abu Hanifa but they don't reach the same level of certainty so they're like ahad statements singular narrations from Abu Hanifa precedence is always given to Zahir al-Riwayah and then uh, if you don't have Zahir al-Riwayah then to the Nawadir sometimes the Zahir al-Riwayah has multiple narrations um, so they'll distinguish between them and then uh, the third category is the Fatawa so Maybe it's not actually in a position of Abu Hanifa, but the later scholars of the madhab have dealt with the issue and come to some sort of conclusion on it. So that's a side point. Okay, so this is water. Basically, the summary is you have water. It's pure. If it comes from the sky, it comes from the earth. Then you have two possibilities after that. One is that something that is pure mixes with it the other is that something impure mixes with it if something pure mixes with it then you have two possibilities one is that that pure thing is liquid and the other is that that pure thing is a solid uh, if it's liquid then the attributes of water are color taste and smell and if that thing that is mixed with the water has any of those qualities and the majority of them show then it becomes impermissible to purify with so if it has three qualities and two show if it has two qualities and one show if it has one quality and that one quality shows then in all of those cases the resulting combination would be not acceptable for purification or something pure mixes with it but that pure thing is a solid in which case uh, we look at what was the exact wording they used there that was a good translation he used um, uh, um, liquid uh, liquid nor fluid um, liquid or fluid so you know you look at that liquidity fluidity and quenching thirst liquidity fluidity and quenching thirst so if the solid thing mixes with it, then the liquidity, fluidity, uh, yeah, 
and quenching thirst are the qualities that are looked at if those predominate then the resulting thing is not okay to make ablution with um, or if something impure mixes with it then uh, then we look at large quantities versus small quantities if it's a small quantity and something impure mixes with it then it becomes impure if it's a large quantity and something impure mixes with it then either you can see the effects of that impurity in which case it's not pure or you cannot in which case it's pure um, this is all for water that is not moving if the water is flu is is flowing or the water is large then uh, the impurity mixing with it does not make it impure inshallah it is clear any questions on that usually there's questions on it but i think that this is actually a good um the way that he's described it here is pretty clear it's also clear in Nur al-Idah. It's not really very clear in like some of the Mutun. Um, Quduri and others. Like generally if I've taught Quduri in the past. I've um, more or less like skipped this part of Quduri. And taken it from Nur al-Idah. And Nur al-Idah gives all of these details as well. If you want to look somewhere else. Okay, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and assume that you understood then. Seventy nine. All right, Faslun So we talked, we've already covered at uh, Taharatu. Minan hadith, the purification from uh, ritual impurity. Now we have to do purification from actual impurity, physical impurities. And we talked about the difference between the two. So, like a ritual impurity would be that someone passed gas, for example, or fell asleep. And those things put you into a state of impurity fell asleep not in a position where their backside is firmly planted uh, but this here is like actual physical impurities okay uh, it is a condition that the body of the one offering prayer his clothing and place be pure from all impurities which prevent the permissibility of the prayer Al-Najasatu Al-Mani'ah Wahiya ma zada ala qadr al-dirham Min al-mughalladati kabawli Ma la yukal lahmu Wal-dami wal-khamri wal-arwathi Wa-miqdari rub'i thawbi Min al-mukhaffafati Kabawli ma yukalu lahmu wal-faras uh, so it says that uh, regarding purification from impurity uh, again, I'll just read it again. It is a condition that the body of the one offering prayer, his clothing, and place be pure from all impurities which prevent the permissibility of the prayer. So his physical body, the clothes that he's wearing, and the place that he's praying. Preventative impurity. So all of these impurities prevent the permissibility of prayer. But how much of them is what actually prevents it? That's what he's going to talk about now. It is that preventative impurity. It is that which exceeds the size of a dirham from the heavy and pure substances, such as the urine of an animal whose meat is not eaten, blood, wine, feces. From the light impure substances, it is the area of a quarter of the clothing, 
such as the urine of an animal whose meat is eaten and a horse. So there's a distinction between heavy impurities and light impurities. Mughallada and mukhaffafa. Heavy impurities versus light impurities. So heavy impurities are things like urine of an animal whose meat is not eaten. Blood, wine, feces, all of these are heavy impurities. So for these ones, the amount that is forgiven is the amount of a dirham, which they say is like the valley of your palm, the inside of your palm. So the valley of your palm, this is basically the amount of a dirham. And uh, if that amount is there, or less than that, then uh, it is, it is uh, pardoned and it does not prevent the correctness of the salat. That's why it's called the preventative impurity. It doesn't prevent the correctness of the salat. Um, and the amount of heavy substances, which is excused, is the size of a dirham and less. And from the light impurities, such as that which the urine of that which can be eaten. So the urine of like a cow. Then for these, it's a fourth of the cloth or the limb. A fourth of the cloth or the limb, depending if it's on the body or on a piece of clothing. A quarter of it. She should say more in the commentary, which we'll go to now. Okay. So he says it is that which exceeds the size of a dirham. A dirham in relation to solid filth is equal to 2.3 grams. And in terms of liquids is the amount that would settle on the open palm of the hand. So if it's solid, then 2.3 grams, this weight. And in terms of liquid, it's in the, would settle in the palm of the hand. Uh, from heavy, is, is then it goes into the um, quarter, right? Meaning a quarter of the whole cloth or whole body according to the view preferred by the scholars. Mm. As for the definition of heavy and light subst impure substances, Imam Zaylai explained that the Hanafi scholars differed over how these two were to be defined. According to Imam Abu Hanifa, an, Imam Abu Hanifa, the classification of heavy impure substances is established by a textual proof, which is not contradicted by another textual proof. The light of the light impure substances are those regarding which there are conflicting evidences, but the evidence for their being filth is given preference. So it's interesting. Um, and then it mentions a, a quarter again. So that's important. A quarter of the whole cloth or whole body quarter of the whole cloth or whole body so actually a significant amount of a uh, light impurity can be on the person um, Wow, there's a whole piece that's not here, isn't there? Yeah. Hmm. something on seekers guidance
So there's also um, an important issue as relates to that which um, like basically birds who um, birds that are non predatory birds their droppings are pure they're not impure that's the main point birds that are not the birds that can be eaten um, maybe it's um, yeah Birds are different than what's mentioned here in terms of animals whose eat is meat is eaten. That's like a goat, a lamb, a cow. But birds are a different category than this. So predatory birds, they're um, their droppings and stuff are impure. But the droppings of uh, birds that you can eat their droppings are actually pure which matters because like the masajid are filled with it right not in the west but if you go to these big masajid the big old masajid and stuff they're filled with pigeon droppings and stuff like that because the pigeons are just all over the place so those are those are pure okay any questions so far? I feel like we're covering a lot of content. One of the, I think, great blessings, by the way, of being a Hanafi in the West is that you can refer to Seeker's guidance because they have so many answers. And uh, so, like, a lot of the issues that come up, you can find. You can fill in the holes that you have in the Medheb through Seeker's guidance answers, which is a great blessing. Okay, Bismillah. Faslun fi satr al-awra. Faslun fi satr al-awra. I hope I'm not... I can't tell. I think I made it so that you guys should be able to... Um, yeah. So, Faslun fi satr al-awra. Awra tu rajli min tahti suratihi ila tahti rukbatihi. وتزيل عليه الأمة بظهرها وبطنها وجميع بدن حرة عورة إلا وجهها وكفيها وقدميها وتفسد الصلاة بانكشاف ربع عضو من العورة لا ما دونه حتى لو انكشف ربع فخذي فخذي الرجل أو ربع ربع ساق المرأة أو ربع أذنها فسرت صلاتهما. So he says regarding the covering of nakedness, aura. The nakedness of a man is from below his navel to below his knees. A slave girl's nakedness is similar to that of a man, uh, with the addition of the back and the stomach. Uh, all of a free woman's body is nakedness except for the face, hands, and feet. So the nakedness of a man is from below his navel to below his knees, and a free and a woman is from everything except her face, hands, and feet, which came up in the chat. The prayer is invalidated. So usually the issue of aura comes up in the section of prayer, because that's where it has a con consequential legal ruling um, as to the correctness or validity of the prayer so the prayer is invalidated by exposing of a quarter of a body part from those that are part of the nakedness not less than this so if a quarter of a man's knee or a quarter of a woman's shin or ear is exposed both of their prayers are invalidated so a quarter of that particular part which obviously like as relates to a forearm is a lot bigger than as relates to uh, a knee <laughs> in this case to use the example that's there um, let's see if there's anything here 
So he says in this um So in the Hanafi school the the navel is not part of the aura for men, but the knees are. And some of the other schools the knees are not and the navel is. So just be aware of that. In the Hanafi school the navel is not and the knees are. Um, as for women Shurun Bulali said The whole body of a free woman is nakedness Except for her face And outer parts uh, And palms of her hands According to the more correct position Which is adopted Mukhtar um, The outer part And soles of women's feet Are not nakedness So it says basically hands, hands, Face, hands and feet Prayer is invalidated by exposing a quarter. He doesn't say anything on that. So, Kila, we come to the end of prayer. I mean, sorry, we come to prayer, we come to the end of purification. Alhamdulillah. We got to the end of purification. Alhamdulillah. This is page 83. Okay. Good. Take a breathing break. 30 seconds breathing break. Before we start, Alhamdulillah, prayer. Mm. All right. Bismillah. Faslun fi awqat as-salat. Faslun fi awqat as-salat. ووقت الصبح من الفجر الصادق وهو البياض المعترض في الأفق إلى طلوع الشمس والظهر من الزوال إلى بلوغ الذل مثله سوى في الاستواء والعصر من بلوغ الذل مثله إلى المغرب ووقت المغرب منه إلى غروب الشفق الأبيض المتعقب للحمرة والعشاء من غروب الشفق الأبيض إلى الصبح الصادق Okay, section on the times of prayer. The time of the subh, dawn prayer, is from the true dawn, which is the horizontal whiteness on the horizon until the rising of the sun. So they will talk about al-fajr al-sadiq and al-fajr al-kathib. Al-fajr al-sadiq and al-fajr al-kathib. Al-fajr al-sadiq is this one. The one which is the horizontal whiteness on the horizon. Okay, and the Fajr al-Kathib, the lying Fajr, is a light that appears just before that, and it flashes vertically. This is what they say, that it flashes vertically, and, and then it goes away. It goes dark again. And then this little flash will come on the horizon horizontally, and it will grow and grow and grow and grow until the sun rises. So it's from that Fajr al-Sadiq, the true dawn. Dhuhr prayer is from the sun's zenith until a shadow reaches twice its length in addition to its shadow at midday. So basically what this is is that at the zenith of the sun, the, the absolute midpoint of the day, usually there's still a tiny amount of shadow. So Dhuhr starts once it begins to cross, that hits the zenith and starts to move to the next, the other side. Then that's the beginning of Dhuhr. And whatever little shadow is there at that point, Dhuhr ends when that shadow, when the shadow of an object reaches twice its length plus that little amount. So like if it's like a thumb, you know, it takes twice the thumb plus that little amount, that's the um, ending of it. That's the ending. That's the Zohar time. Um, there's a question on women's aura in front of other women.
So they say that the aura of the woman in front of other women is the same as the aura of the man. Obviously, that's a little bit... Um, that leaves a lot of space. <laughs> um, but uh, I've also seen... That's what's in this article here from Mufti Muhammad ibn Adam. I've also seen that it's... Um, It is the aura of, um, or it is the aura of the slave woman, meaning navel to the knees, and then including the, basically the the upper body, and down down to the knees. Um, but it seems that there's some debate on that. You can try to find something else. I'll try to I'll try to find more. Let me make a note of it. The Asr prayer is from a shadow reaching twice its length until sunset. So Zohar goes from the middle of the day, or just after the middle of the day, until the shadow of the object reaches twice its length, plus the little amount that was still there at the middle of the day. Then Asr is from that same twice its length until Maghrib, which is sunset. So until sunset. Um, this Asr time that's mentioned here is the Abu Hanifa Asr time. Abu Yusuf, it, it differs from the majority. The majority would say that Zohar goes until the shadow of the object reaches its height, not twice its height. Um, and Abu Yusuf and Muhammad agreed with the majority, but Abu Hanifa held the position that is mentioned here. What's important is that whatever you're going to do, try to be consistent with it. That's the main the main takeaway if you're going to do the Abu Hanifa Asr time then try to be consistent with it if you're going to do the other one then try to be consistent with it don't like pick and choose based on how you feel on any given day uh, the time of mm-hmm mm-hmm Yeah, I think it's better to join the congregation. But I've seen people do otherwise. Like I remember when we were in Azhar, there was one brother who would never pray the Jama'ah in Azhar with Asr because he was Hanafi. So he'd just like sit in the back of the masjid and the Asr would be going on and then afterwards he would, you know, like an hour later he would pray his Asr. And, uh, you know, but I think, I think it's better to join the Jama'ah. Um, but also, like, if you have an influence in a masjid, it's good to, um, especially in a masjid, if you have an influence, it's good to make the Iqamah time such that it fits in the Hanifi time. So that's what we used to do when I was an Imam, was that, uh, whatever our Asr Jama'ah time was We made sure that it was Within the Asr That would be agreed upon by both yeah. um, The time of the Maghrib prayer Is from sunset until the disappearance Of the white twilight Which follows the red twilight So there's some red in the sky Then there's some white in the sky That When that white starts to go away that's the end of Maghrib time And Isha prayer is from that time Until the true dawn So these are the five It's 
Mm. Alright, let's see what he says in the commentary. The prayer was made obligatory on the night of Isra'at, in the tenth year after the Prophet received the first revelation. Originally 50, became 5. Prophet Allah tells us to pray at fixed hours. Fixed. Yiqata. Uh, uh, it was fixed times. So, um, the only thing that right here in this comment is the issue of when Maghrib ends. There is an opinion that's attributed to Abu Hanifa that Maghrib ends at the end of that red twilight, but the fatwa is on the white one, the one that's uh, mentioned. Okay, and the timings of the prayer are mentioned in the narration. Okay, that the Sayyidina Jibreel salam came to the Prophet and showed him the times of the prayer. Okay. So that is that. There's not that much there by way of commentary. So that takes us up to regarding facing the direction of prayer and the intention. I think that... Mm, actually, let's cover this part. فَصْلٌ فِي اسْتِقْبَالِ الْقِبْلَةِ وَالنِّيَةِ اسْتِقْبَالِ الْقِبْلَةِ شَرْطٌ إِلَّا فِي حَقِّ الْخَائِفِ مِنْ نَحْوِ عَدُوًا أَوْ سَبْعٍ وَالْمَرِيدِ الَّذِي لَا يَجِدُ مَنْ يُحَوِّلُهُ إِلَيْهَا فَإِنَّ قِبْلَتُهُمَا جِهَةُ قُدْرَتِهِمَا وَقِبْلَةُ مَنْ اشْتَبَهَتْ عَلَيْهِمْ قِبْلَةُ جِهَةُ تَحَرِّيهِ وَأَمَّا النِّيَةُ فَمَعْنَاهَا قَصْدٌ فِعْلِي وَالشَّرْطُ نِيَةٌ قَلْبٌ وَالتَّلَفُّظُ بِاللِّسَانِ مُسْتَحَبٌ وَلَا بُدَّ مِنَ التَّعْيِينِ فِي الْفَرْدِ وَالْوَاجِبِ بِخِلَافِ السُّنَنِ وَالنَّوَافِلِ وَيَكْفِي لَهَا نِيَةُ مُطْلَقِ الصَّلَاةِ So a section regarding facing the direction of prayer and the intention. Facing the direction of prayer is a condition except in the case of one in fear, such as from an enemy or a predatory animal. Likewise, an ill person who does not have anyone to face him towards the direction of prayer. So you have someone who's in fear because of an enemy they're in fear because of an animal they're hiding out from like this lion that's there and they can't really move and the prayer time is ending but they have to pray but they can't face the direction they need to face because the lion's going to notice them so they just pray the way they are um, or the person who's sick and they're not able to turn themselves and they don't have someone who can turn them so that person, their, his direction of prayer is the direction that he is able to face. The direction of prayer of the one who was unsure of it is the direction he estimates. So the, the one case is the person who can't actually face the direction they need to. For them, whatever direction they face, that's their qibla. And for the one who doesn't know where the qibla is, then that person's qibla is their best guess. Their best estimation shouldn't be guess. Their best estimation. Um, so they do their best and they try to figure it out and they pray in that direction. Well, okay. As for the intention, its meaning is to desire to perform an action. That's what intention is: desire to perform an action. It is a condition that the intention should be with the heart. Articulating with the tongue is desirable. So what's required is that in the heart the person has the intention. And to say it out loud is mustahab. It's recommended, but it's not required. Okay. And it is necessary to specify, uh, recommend it. You know, all of the so many of the Salafis they say, uh, quote unquote, they say that at-talafud bin-niyati bid'ah that to say your niyyah out loud is an innovation. So, but the madhab, the Hanafis say that it's recommended. The Shafi'is say that it's recommended. Allah is in charge. It is necessary to specify in the obligatory and necessary prayers as opposed to the recommended and optional prayers for which a general intention for prayer suffices. So basically in, in, in an obligatory prayer, some, yeah, one has to make the specific niyyah. I'm praying dhuhr. 
I'm praying Asr, I'm praying Fajr. And in the optional prayers, a general intention for prayer suffices. General intention for prayer suffices in an optional prayer. Okay. This whole turning towards wherever you can, uh, you estimate. This, however, is when there is no one present whom a person who wishes to pray can ask about the direction of prayer. If there is someone whom he can ask who is a local resident and is aware of the direction of prayer, it is not permissible for him to estimate. It is not necessary for him to find someone if no one is present. So if someone is there who can actually tell them the Qibla, they can't just go for it. So... Supplies also like if they have a compass or they have their phone can tell them they can't just be like oh I think it's this way and go for it they have to actually find out if there's no way to find out then then they can um, they don't have to like look for someone no one's around they can't figure it out they just do their best guess if after estimating a person prays and then comes to know that the direction he prayed in was incorrect his prayer is still valid if a person comes to know while praying that he is facing the wrong direction, he turns around to the correct direction and continues the prayer. Okay, so those are the two possibilities. You make your best effort. You pray. You find out afterwards that you prayed to the wrong direction. If it's complete, it's complete. If you find out during prayer that you're in the wrong direction, then you turn to the right direction. Um... Intention is made with the heart, uttering the tongue. Um, uttering with the tongue is of no value if not accompanied by the heart. But why they mention the uttering with the tongue is because it helps to make the heart present. So uh, it helps in that regard. And again, in obligatory prayers, this niya, the intention has to be specific. Whereas in optional, nawafil, uh, sunan prayers, a general intention that you are making prayer is sufficient. Wallahu a'lam. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Any questions? Continue here. Next time. Welcome, fine sir. Inshallah, you're doing well. Inshallah, everyone's doing okay in their in their khalwas. <laughs> I I think that's what I would be feeling like too if I didn't have small children. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, I mean it's it's uh, it's normal. I know, I know. Even as it is with the with the kids at home, I'm still I'm still enjoying it. Um, on the question of the women's aura to women, it is as the actually the Hanafi position and the majority position are the same, which is that it's between the navel and the knee, assuming there's no shahwa uh, or khawf al fitna, you know, assuming that there's no desire or fear of trial or tribulation you know that it's not going to lead to some sort of problem um well um